0: How do you build and maintain a complex suite of Python packages? Of course, you want to put them on PyPI. The best format there is as a wheel. This means that when developers use your code, it comes straight down and requires no local tooling to install and use. But if you have complex dependencies, such as C or Fortran, then you have a big challenge. How do you automatically compile and test against Linux, macOS, that's Intel and Apple Silicon, Windows, 32 and 64-bit, and so on. That's the problem solved by CI BuildWheel. On this episode, you'll meet Henry Schreiner. He's developing tools for the next era of the Large Hadron Collider and is an admin of Scikit-HEP. Of course, CI BuildWheel is central to that process. This is Talk Python to Me, episode 338, recorded October 14th, 2021. Welcome to Talk Python to Me, a weekly podcast on Python. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Follow me on Twitter where I'm at mkennedy and keep up with the show and listen to past episodes at talkpython.fm and follow the show on Twitter via at talkpython. We've started streaming most of our episodes live on YouTube. Subscribe to our YouTube channel over at talkpython.fm slash YouTube to get notified about upcoming shows and be part of that episode. Hey there, I have some exciting news to share before we jump into the interview. We have a new course over at TalkPython. HTMX plus Flask, modern Python web apps hold the JavaScript. HTMX is one of the hottest properties in web development today, and for good reason. You might even remember all the stuff we talked about with Carson Gross back on episode 321. HTMX, along with the libraries and techniques we introduce in our new course, will have you writing the best Python web apps you've ever written clean, fast, and interactive. All without that front-end overhead if you're a python web developer that has wanted to build more dynamic interactive apps but don't want to or can't write a significant portion of your app in rich front-end javascript frameworks you'll absolutely love htmx check it out over at talkpythonfm slash htmx or just click the link in your podcast player show notes now let's get on to that interview henry welcome to talk python to me thank you yeah it's great to have you here I'm always fascinated with cutting edge physics with maybe both ends of physics, right? I'm like really fascinated with astrophysics and the super large, and then also the the very, very small. And we're going to probably tend a little bit towards the smaller high energy things this time around, but uh, so much fun to talk about this stuff and how it intersects Python.
1: Some of the smallest things you can uh, measure and some of the largest amounts of data you can get out
0: yeah, the the data story is actually really, really crazy. And we're going to talk a bit about that. So neat, so much stuff. Like we used to think that atoms were as small as things could get, right? Like I remember learning that in elementary school, like there are these things called atoms. They combine to form compounds and stuff and that that's as small as it gets. And yeah, not so much, right? Yeah. And well, that was sort of what atom was supposed to mean. <laughs> exactly. The, the smallest bit, but nope. It But that name got used up. So there we are. All right. Well, before we get into all that stuff, though, let's start with your story. How do you get into programming in Python?
1: Well, I started with um, a little bit of programming that my dad taught me. He was a physicist, and uh, I remember it was C plus plus and sort of taught the way you would teach Java. You know, all objects and classes. Yeah, did just a little bit. And then when I started at college, then I wanted to take I wanted to take classes, and I took a couple classes again in C but I just really loved objects and classes. Unfortunately, the the courses didn't actually cover that much, but the book did. So I really got into that. And then for Python, uh, actually, right when I started
0: college, I I started using this program called Blender. Oh yeah, Blender. I've heard of Blender. It's like 3D animation tool, like Maya or something like that, right? Mm And it's very Python friendly, right? Yes, it has a built-in Python interpreter. So I knew it had this built-in language
1: called Python. So that made me really want to learn Python. And then when I went to, I went, an uh reU a research experience for undergraduates at Northwestern University in um, Chicago and uh, when I was there we had this uh, cluster that we were working on this was in uh, solid state physics material physics and this we would launch these simulations on the on the cluster and so I t- I started using Python and I was able to write program a program that go out and it would would uh, create a bunch of threads and it would watch all of the uh, cluster, all the nodes in the cluster. And as soon as one became available, it would take it. So I could just, my simulation could just take the entire cluster. After a few hours, I would have everything. So at the (laughs) end of that, everybody hated me and everybody wanted my scripts.
0: Exactly. They're like, this is horrible. I can't believe you did that to me, but I'll completely forgive you if you just give it to me and only to me because I need that power. (laughs) Yeah, that's fantastic. Uh, How neat. So I think that is one of the, the cool things about Python, right? Is that it's, it has this quick prototyping approachability that you're like, I'm just going to take over, you know, a huge hardware, right? Like a huge cluster of servers, but it's, it itself doesn't have to be like intense programming. It can be like this elegant little bit of code, right? You can sort of do things that uh, normally I think the programming gets in the way more, but Python tends to stay out. It looks more
1: like pseudocode. So you can, you can do more and learn more and eventually you can go do it in C++ or something, but
0: yeah, yeah, absolutely. Great way to or, start. or yeah, or maybe not sometimes, Sometimes you do need to go do it in some other language and sometimes you don't. Uh, I think the stuff at CERN and LHC has an interesting exchange between C++ and, and maybe some more Python and, and whatnot. So that'll be fun to talk about. Yeah,
1: yeah. we've been C++ originally, but uh, Python is, is really showing up in a lot more places and there's been a lot of movement in that that direction. Yeah, And there, there've been some really interesting things that have come out. A lot of interesting things have come out of the LHC, computing-wise as well as physics.
0: Awesome. Yeah, it's... As a computing bit of infrastructure, there's a ton going on there. And as physics, it's kind of the center of the um, particle physics world, right? So uh, it's, it's got those two parallel things generating all, all sorts of cool stuff. I want to go back to just really quickly to, you know, you talked about your dad teaching a little programming. If people are out there and they're the dad, they want to teach their kids a little bit of programming. I want to give a shout out to CodeCombat.com. Such a cool place. My daughter just yesterday was like, hey, dad, I want to do a little Python. Remember that game? that taught me programming I'm like yeah yeah sure so she's like she logged in and started playing and basically solve a dungeon interactively by writing python and it's it's such an approachable way but it's not the like draggy droppy fake stuff you write real python which i think is is cool to introduce kids that way so anyway a shout out to them i had them on the podcast before but it's it's cool to see kids like taking to it in that way right whereas you say like you could write a terminal app they're like i don't want to do that <laughs> you know but solve a dungeon yeah they could do that yeah i've actually played with a couple of those they're actually really fun just to play with. Yeah, they are. Exactly. I did like 40 dungeons along with my daughter. It was very cool. How about now? What do you do now?
1: So uh, I work in a lot of different areas and I jump around a lot. Um, So I do a mix of coding. I do some work on websites um, because they just needed maintenance and somehow I got volunteered and (laughs) um, and some writing. So less coding than I would like, but I definitely do get to to do it, which
0: is fun. Yeah, and this is at, at CERN or at uh, your university or where, where is this? So now
1: I'm at the, at uh, Princeton University and I'm part of a, sort of a local group of RSEs, research software engineers. Um, and I'm also part of the uh, HEP, which we'll talk about in a little bit, but uh, that's sort of a, a very spread out group. Some, a few of us are at CERN, a few are at, in some other places, uh, a few in Fermi Fermilab. And uh, uh, energy physicists are just used to working remote. The pandemic wasn't that big of a change for us. We were already doing all our meetings remote. We just eventually changed from video to Zoom. But (laughs) other than that, it was was exactly it
0: was it was real similar for me as well. That's interesting. Fermilab, that's in Chicago, outside Chicago, right? Yes. Is that still going? I got the sense that that was shutting down. They're big in neutrino physics. Um, So they do a lot of neutrino things
1: there, and then uh, they're also very active just in the particle physics space. So you, you know, you may be
0: at Fermilab but working on certain. Data. I see. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I got but to most, tour most of the- that place a little bit, and mm-hmm. it's it's a really neat place. It is CERN's a neat place too. I, I would love to tour CERN, but uh, it, it wasn't you know twenty minutes down the street from where I happened to be, <laughs> so I didn't make it there. Sadly, I hope to get back there someday. All right, well, let's let's talk about sort of the the psychic hep side of things and how you got into maintaining all of these packages so you found yourself in this place where you're working on tools that help other people build packages for the physicists and data scientists and so on right so where'd that all start so with with maintenance itself the first thing i started
1: maintaining was a package called plumbum back um in 2015 and uh, at that point i was starting to to submit some prs and the author came to me and said "Hey, you know i i would like to have somebody do the releases i need a release manager i don't have enough time and i said sure i'd be happy to do it and it was exciting for me because it was the first first package or like real package i got to um to join and uh so i i mean i think on the page it might even still have the original news item when it says welcome to me but <laughs> um, nice so that was the first thing i started uh, maintaining and then uh sir so i was working on a a iG um, physics tool called GUFIT when I became a postdoc. And uh, I worked on sort of really renovating that. It started out as a code written by physicists. And uh, I worked on making it actually installable and, and packaged nicely and uh, worked with a student to add Python bindings to it, things like that. And as part of that, I, I wrote a C++ package, CLI 11. as is just uh, first package I actually like, wrote and then maintained, um, and it's actually in C++. And that uh, was written for Goofit, but it, now it's a uh, fairly, um, I, think, I think it's done pretty well on its, on its own. Nice. What's Microsoft that Microsoft Terminal What's uses it.
0: Yeah. Microsoft Terminal uses it? Mm-hmm. Oh, nice. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Microsoft Terminal. Uh, I've, for a while now, kind of shied away from working on Windows because the Terminal experience has been really crummy. You know, the cmd.exe command prompt style is just like, oh, why is it so painful? And people who work in that all day, they might not see this it. painful. But if you get to work in something like a Mac OS terminal, or even to not quite the same degree, but still in like a Linux one, then all of a sudden, yeah, it, it kind of gets there. So I'm, but but I'm I'm kind of uh, warming up to it again with Windows Terminal.
1: Yeah, the, the X Term is one of the reasons I use. I um, really moved to Mac because I loved X Term, and then um, Windows Terminal is amazing. I, now it's a great great team working on it, including the fact that they used my uh, parser. But uh, um, it's it's actually quite nice. The only problem I have in Windows 10 is it's really hard to get the thing to sh- to show up instead of CM- CMD prompt. Yeah. But Windows like yeah, I think it's be the only one. Yeah.
0: I definitely think it's included now, that, which is great. So uh, CLI 11, this is a C 11 command line parser, right? Like click or arg parse or something like that, mm-hmm. but for C++, right?
1: Yes. It was designed off of the Pumbum command line parser. Pumbum is sort of a toolkit. And it has several different things. I wish those things had been pulled out because I think on their own, they might've uh, maybe even been yeah. popular on their own. Uh, it has a really nice parser, but it was sort of designed off of that and off click. Mm, so it has, okay. it has some um, similarities to the both of those.
0: Yeah, I think probably that's a challenge. I mean, uh, we're gonna get into GitHub with a whole bunch of these different packages, but finding the right granularity of what is a, a self-contained unit that you wanna share with people or versus things like pulling out a command line Parser rather than some other library, right? This is this is a careful yeah. balance.
1: I th- it's a it's a bit challenging. I think in Python the there's a really strong um, emphasis to having the individual separate pieces and packages, um, especially in Python. Partially because it has a really good um, packaging system and that you know being able to take things have just pieces and be able to swap out one that you don't like is really really nice. And that sort of that's one of the things we'll talk about the PyPA as well. And that's one of the things that. Uh, they focus on is small individual packages that each do a, a job versus like all-in-one poetry.
0: Yeah. Well, you'll have to do some checking or some uh, fact-checking, balancing, modernizing for me. I did professional C++ development for a couple of years and I really enjoyed it until there were better options. <laughs> and then I'm like, well, why am I still doing this? I would, have, I would go work on those. But um, one of the things that struck me as a big difference you know, to that world is basically the the number of libraries you use, the the granularity of the libraries you use. You know, the relative acceptance of things like pip and the ease of using another library. Right? If in C plus, you've got the header and you've got the the linked <laughs> file and you've got the DLL, and there's like all sorts of stuff that can like get out of sync and go crazy and like make weird crashes. Your app just goes away, and that's not great. Um, is that still true? I, I feel like that that difference is one of the things that allows for people to make these smaller composable pieces in python
1: i think that has a lot to do with it what um has happened in c++ is there's sort of a rise of a lot of header only libraries and these oh, libraries um are a lot easier to just drop into your your project because all you do is you put in the headers and there's no you don't have to deal with a lot of the um the original issues So a lot of these small standalone libraries are header only um and one of the next things that i i uh, picked up as a maintainer was pybind11 which and i and i've sort of been in that space sort of between c++ and python for quite a quite a bit i like, kind of like being in that that area um, joining joining the two and, i get a uh, sense
0: from I, listening to the things that you've worked on previously and and things like this that you're you're interested in connecting and enabling like piecing together like here's my script that's going to pull together the compute on this cluster or here's this library that pulls together python and C++ and so on.
1: Yes, make, making different things work together and, and combining things like C++ and Python or combining different packages in Python and piecing together a solution. I think that's one of Python's strengths versus something like MATLAB. Spent quite a bit of time in MATLAB oh, early on and uh, got to move a lot of stuff over to Python. Which, right uh, on,
0: that, that's awesome. It was really nice. So, we didn't have to have uh, a license and things like that. Uh, I know, it's it's so expensive. And then you get the, what are they called? Toolkits, the add-on toolkits. And they're like... Each toolkit is the price of you know another thousand dollars a year, or two thousand dollars a year. It's it's ridiculous. So I know of um, CFFI, which is a way for Python and C to get clicked together in a, a simple way. Uh, what, how's Pybind eleven fit into that? This is seamless interoperability between C plus plus eleven and Python. How are they different?
1: So CFFI, um, I, I teach like a little short course where I can go through the different some of the different binding tools. Uh, and it usually ends with me saying by 11 is my favorite. But
0: um, <laughs> yeah, cool. Give us an CFFI overview of what the options is, are and stuff. Yeah,
1: is closer to C types. It's more of it. it's focused on C versus C++. Um, and uh, it's actually the one I've used the least that was just helping. Um, we're just talking with the CFFI developer, but um, I've used it the least of those. But uh, I think it basically parses your um, C headers and then sort of automates a lot of what, you would have to manually do a C type. So you have to, to spec, you know, specify what symbol you want to call and what the arguments are and what the return type is. And if one of those things is wrong, you get a seg fault and that sort of thing. Um, whereas PyBind 11, this is about building modules, extension modules. So, And it's and it's and the interesting thing about this is that it's written in pure C++. The other tools out there, so Cython can do this. It's not what it was designed for, but uh, it immediately became popular for doing this because Cython turned code Python, Python-like code is a new language, into, it transpile it into C or C++. It had a toggle you could change, has a toggle you can change. And then um, when you're there, you can now call C or C++, uh, but it's extremely verbose and you repeat yourself and you have to learn another language, this weird combined Python thing. And, and just thinking in Cython is difficult because you have to think about, well, am I, am I in Python or am I in Cython? that can, that's going to be bound to Python, or am I in Python? that's just going straight to C, C++, or am I just in C++? Yeah. For C, but I've actually used it. It's C++. a lot of layers there, yeah. But Python 11 is just C++, and it's just, it's basically, um, it's like the C API for Python, but a C++ API. It's quite it's quite natural, and in, and you don't have to learn a new language. It, it uses some fairly advanced C++, but that's, that's it. You're learning something useful anyway.
0: Right. So do you do some sort of like template type thing and then say I'm going to expose this class to Python or something like that, and then it figures out, does it write the Python code or what is it?
1: It's writing it the...
0: Compi- uh, build like .so files or what, what What do you do here?
1: Uh, it it um, compiles into the C API calls and then that would compile into a .so. Um, and there's no separate you just step say, like Cython or Swig or, these, or um, these other tools because it's just C++. You compile it like you do any other C++ but it's actually uh, internally using the C Python API or, or PyPy's wrapper for it. And the language looks a lot like Python, but the names are similar. You just do a def to define a function and you give it the name and then you just pass it the pointer to the, um, the underlying thing. It can figure out things like types and stuff like that for you. Give it a doc string if you want, give the arguments names, just you can make it as Pythonic as you want. It's verbose, but it's not overly verbose. And
0: yeah, that's really neat. But nice. And for people who haven't used those kind of outputs basically, it's just import module name whether it's a dot py file or it's a, a um, a if .so you've used file.
1: PyTorch, yeah. if you've used um, Thipy, if you've used any of those things, you have you've you've been importing some PyBind
0: 11 code. So, let's talk a little bit about scikit-hep. This is uh, one of the projects you know that it has a lot of these packages inside of it, and you're your library, uh, C uh, build wheel, C I build wheel, excuse me, is one of the things that is used to maintain and build a lot of those packages. Because I'm sure they have a lot of interesting and oddball dependencies, right? I mean, C++ is kind of standard, but there's probably others as well, right?
1: Um, it's, it is. So one thing that is kind of um, somewhat unique to, to HEP is that we are very heavily invested in C++. So there's, it's usually either you're going to see Python or you're going to see some sort of C++ package of some sort. I mean, it could be varies in size there, but it's mostly C or Python. We really um, haven't used other languages much for the past early nineties. Is that
0: or so. is that inertia or is that by choice? You know, why is that?
1: I think it's it's partially the community is uh, a fairly um, fairly cohesive community. We're really used to sort of working together. The experiments themselves are uh, often, you know, might be a thousand. Or several thousand um, physicists working on a single experiment. And uh, we have been fairly good about sort of meeting together and and sort of deciding the direction that we want to go in and then sort of sticking to that. So um, for C++, it was heavily root, which is a, a giant um, C++ framework, and it's got everything in it. And that was you know, C++, and that's what everybody used. Right, and so root now we is sort of the library. I if thought, I was going
0: to write code that would run and interact with like the, grid computing or the data access and all that kind of stuff at LHC, I would use this root library if I was doing that in C++, right? Yes.
1: And you might be using interpreted C++, which is something we invented.
0: Oh, okay. This is uh, this is interesting. Is this something people can use?
1: Oh, yes. We actually, so uh, Cint was the original interpreter and then it got replaced by uh, Clean, which is built on the LLVM. And um, I think recently it was merged to mainline LLVM as um, Clang, Clang REPL, I think is it's I think it's called. Um, but it's sort of a lightweight version. Yeah, it's a it's a C plus uh, interpreter. You can actually get Zeus um, which uh I think Quantstack has, but uh, they they package it as well. I think it was Zeus ZeusCling.
0: Okay. Yeah, very interesting. So
1: it's not C really wasn't designed for a notebook though. It does work, but you can't rerun a cell often because of the you can't de- redefine things. Python is just really natural in a notebook and C is not. Yeah,
0: especially if you change the type, you compile it as an int, and then you're like, ah, that should be a string. Like, yeah, that's not going to be a string. It's compiled. Yeah, interesting. So it seems to me like the community at CERN has decided, look, we need some low-level stuff. And there's some crazy low-level things that that happen over there. People can check out a video. Maybe I'll mention a little bit later. But for that use, they've sort of gravitated towards C. And then for the other aspects, it sounds like Python is what everyone agreed to. Like, hey, we want to visualize this. We want to do some notebook stuff. We want to you know, piece things together, something like that, right?
1: It's, it's certainly um, moving that way. They, they definitely have sort of agreed that Python should be a first-class language um, and join C++. That was decided a few years ago. And I think that's been a, a great step in the right direction because what was happening, people were coming in with Python knowledge. They wanted to use Pandas. I and mean, I, I came in that way as well. You know, Pandas and and Numba and all these tools were really really nice and it was we were basically just having to write them all ourselves in in C plus so plus it has a data frame but you know, why not just use why not just use use yeah. Python yeah. which is what people yeah. know yeah. anyway Panda exists <laughs>
0: there's a ton of people already doing this the work maintaining mm-hmm. it for us yeah. root literally this, right? has a string class yeah, yeah. they okay.
1: have their own, they, they literally it's everything they do everything so um sort of the idea and this is sort of the idea behind SciKit HeP was to build this collection of um, packages that would just fill in the missing pieces—the things that energy physicists were used to and needed—and um, some of them are general and, and are were just gaps in the in the data science ecosystem, and some things are very specific to uh, high energy physics. So, SciPyHep actually sort of uh, um, originated as a, a single package. It was sort of it, it sort of looked like um, root right at first, and it was. Invented by someone called Eduardo Rodriguez, who was actually in my office at CERN, and uh, were office mates. And ah, uh, cool. but he did something, I think, really brilliant when he did this. And that is he created an organization called scikit around it. And then he went out and spoke with people and got some of the other Python packages that existed at the time to join scikit Moved them over and started building sort of a, a collection of some of the most popular Python packages at the time. And uh, I, I thought that was great. And I, I really wanted scikit to become a a collection of tools, separate tools. And for the scikit package to just be sort of a meta package that, that just grabbed all the rest. And that's actually kind of where it is now. Right. I can pip install scikit Is that right? You can. And mostly other than a few little things that are still in there that never got pulled out, um, that will mostly just install our most popular, maybe 15 or so packages, 2015 of our most popular packages.
0: Yeah. So it, it probably doesn't really do anything other than say it depends on those packages or, or something like that, right? And then by yeah, it's virtue of installing almost it, it'll grab entirely all pieces. That. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really cool idea and I, I like it. So maybe one of the things I thought would be fun is to go through some of the packages there to give people a sense of what's in here. Some of these are pretty particular and I don't think would find broad use outside of CERN. For example, conda forge root is <laughs> it sounds like that's about building root so i can install it as a dependency or something like that right yeah building root
1: is horrible and uh you actually now can <laughs> get it as part of a a uh, conda package which is just yeah. way better than anything that was available for attaching it to a specific version of python because it has to has to compile against a very specific version of python um but that is that's what it does so unless you want something in root um then that's very uh, specific. Yeah, Some of the more general ones, um, probably our first um, briefly, Mitch, our very first package that I think was really popular among uh, energy physicists that we uh, that we actually produced was uh, uproot, which was just a pure Python package. So you didn't have to install it that read root files so again, very specific for uh, somebody who was um, in high energy physics, but you could actually ins- read a root file and get your data. Without installing root, and that was a game changer. And uh, so now you can actually install root slightly easier. But normally, it's a multi-hour compile, and it's 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 a uh, it's gotten better, but it's still a, a bit of a beast to compile, especially for yeah, Python. That does sound like a beast. Oh my gosh! And now you can just read in your files. It basically, it, it uh, Jim Pavarsky basically just taught Python to understand the the, the decompile the root root file structure, um, and actually can write it right now too. But originally, reading, but that I that see. so this was is like if I wanted really to.
0: Um if I want to create a notebook and maybe visualize some of the data, but I don't really need access to anything else. I I shouldn't depend on this beast of a almost its own operating system type of thing.
1: Yeah. We were, we were very close to being able to use all the data science tools in Python, pandas, things like that for most data worked fine. You just had to get the data. And, uh, I mean, I've, I've done this too, where he had, where I had one special install of Python and root together. That I'd worked several hours on, and it sat somewhere. And I would convert data with it. I'd move it to HDF5, um, and then then I would do all the rest of the analysis in Python. That didn't have right because then I could do and then there's Python and libraries all that, stuff. that
0: read that HDF5 mm-hmm. format, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Okay. So the
1: first package we had that was really popular on its own um, was awkward array. Yeah, and
0: awkward, awkward array I've was originally heard about this one. Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: yeah, that was originally part of, of Upper, Sort of grew out of Uproot. When you're reading root files, you end up with uh these jagged arrays. So that's an array that is not rectangular. So at least one dimension is jagged. It depends on the data. And this shows up in all sorts of places and not just particle collisions. Or obviously shows up lots of places in particle collisions. Like how many hits got triggered in the detector? That's a variable length list. How many tracks are in an event, you know, that's a variable length list. And it can be a variable length list of structured data. And to store that compactly the same way you'd use num numpy, was, um, one thing, but you can, you arrow, and there's some other, there's some other things that do this, but awkward array also gives you numpy like, um, indexing and data manipulation. And that was the sort of the, the breakthrough thing here. It's, it's like numpy, the original one was built on top of numpy. The new one actually has, um, some pybind 11 compiled bits and pieces, but, um, it makes working with that really well. In fact, Jim Povarsky has now got a, uh, got a grant to expand this to I don't remember the number of uh, different uh, disciplines that he's working with, but lots of different areas, genomics and things like that have all have use cases and he's adding things like complex numbers and things that weren't originally needed by energy physicists, but make it widely Almost an
0: uh, evangelism, like dev evangelism type of role, right? Go talk to the other groups and say, hey, we think you should be using this. What is it missing for you to really love it? Something like that, right? Uh, How interesting yeah so of, for uh large scale yeah yeah so looking at the awkward array page here it says for uh, a similar problem, two million times larger than this example given above, which uh, one above is not totally simple, so that's that's pretty crazy. It says awkward array uh the one liner takes four point six seconds to run and uses two gigs of memory. The equivalent Python list in dictionaries takes over two minutes and uses ten times as much memory twenty two gigs, so yeah, that's a pretty appealing value proposition there.
1: Yeah. And this it supports Numba. Jim has been very is very well, works very closely with the Numba team so and really is one of the experts on the Numba internals. So um yeah it, it has full number support now and he's working on adding dask. Uh, he's working with Anaconda on this on this grant and then um working with adding um GPU support.
0: Very cool. Maybe not everyone out there knows what Numba is. Maybe give us a, a quick elevator pitch on numba. I hear it makes Python code fast, right?
1: Yeah. It's a uh just in time compiler and it takes Python, it takes Python, it actually takes the bytecode. And then uh it um basically takes that back to something or it it parses the bytes code and turns it into LLVM. So it works a lot like uh, Julia except instead of a new language, it's actually reading Python bytecode, which is challenging because the Python Python bytecode is not something that stays static or is supposed to be a public uh Detail. <laughs> it's not, yeah, uh, there's no pu- it's, public
0: promises about yeah.
1: Yeah. consistency and, uh, of
0: bytecode across um, across versions because they play with that all the time mm-hmm. to try to speed up things. Mm-hmm. And they add bytecodes and they try to do little optimizations. And
1: yeah, so every Python release breaks number. So they have to. They just <laughs> know the next Python release will not support number, and it usually takes a, a month or two. But when it, it's 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 very impressive though. It it's the speed up, so you do get full sort of C type speed ups for something that looks just like Python Uh, it compiles really fast for a small problem. And it's, it's as fast as anything else you can do. It's, I've, I've tried, I've tried lots of these, of these various programming problems and you just, just about can't beat them, but it actually knows what your architecture is since it's just in time compiling. So you have to do. Which is an advantage over say
0: like C, right? It can look exactly at what your platform is and your machine architecture and say, we're going to target, you know, I see your CPU supports this special vectorized thing or whatever, and it's going to build that in, right?
1: And then what sort of Jim does with Awkward, and we've done with some other things with Vector does this too, um, you can control what Python turns into, what LLVM constructs any Python turns into, because you can control that that compile phase. That's incredibly powerful because you can say, and it doesn't have to be the same thing, but obviously you, you want it to behave the same way. But you can say, if you see this this structure, this is what it turns into. In, L- in LLVM um, machine hmm. code, which then gets compiled, or machine language, which then gets compiled into your native machine language. Interesting you know, like assembly.
0: So, if you have like a certain data structure that you know can be well represented, or uh, gets packed up in a certain way to be super efficient, you can control that.
1: Yeah, you can. You can say that. Well, this like this operation on this data structure. This is what this is what it should do, and then that turns into LLVM, and maybe it can get vectorized or things like that for you.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's super neat! Another package in the list that I, I got to talk about because just the name and the graphic is fantastic is a GAST. <laughs> what, what is a GAST? It's got like this, uh, the scream. I forgot the who was the artist of that, but the scream um, sort of look as part of the logo is good. Yeah, About
1: half of the the uh, logos come from Jim, and I did. I did about half. He did about half, and then use other around or from the individual package authors. Uh, a GAST was so. This is sort of part of the histogramming area, which is where sort of the area I work in, Scikit-Hep, um, but Jim actually wrote Aghast, and the idea was that it would convert between histogram representations. I think it came up because Jim got tired of writing histogram libraries. I think he's written at least five. And, yeah, one of the um, things
0: I got by the sense of by looking through all the scikit stuff, there's a lot of histogram stuff happening over there. Yes. Yeah, so hist-
1: uh, histograms is sort of the area that I was in, and it ended up coming in in several pieces. Um, but I think one of the important things was actually, and I think a Aghast may not really matter, uh, you know, it may get archived at some point because instead of sort of com- um, translating between different representations of histograms in, in memory, what you can do is define a static typing protocol and, and ha- it, can even, it can be uh, checked by MyPy that describes what uh, a, a object needs to be called a histogram. And so I've defined that as a package called UHI, Universal Histogram Interface. And anything that implements UHI, it can be fully, fully checked by um, MyPy, will then be able to take any ob- any object um, from any library that implements UHI. And so all the, the libraries we have that produce histograms, so uproot, when it reads a root histogram, or hist, uh, hist and boost histogram, when they produce histograms, they don't need to depend on each other. They don't even depend on UHI. That's just a static dependency for MyPy time. Uh, and then they can be... Plotted in in uh, Hep, or they can be printed to the terminal with histoprint, and there's no um, dependencies there. One doesn't need the other, and that's sort of making a somewhat unneeded because now it really doesn't matter. You don't have to convert between two because they both just work.
0: They they work on the same underlying uh, structure, basically, right?
1: They they work work through the same interface,
0: right? Yeah. So a is a way to work with different histogramming libraries that kind of is the the intermediary of that or to the it's like an abstraction layer on that okay uh, what are some other ones yeah what are some other ones we should kind of give a shout out to we talked about Goofit, which is it's an uh,
1: affiliated package it's not part of scikit-hep but it has so we got the, we um developed this idea of an affiliated package for sure things that didn't need to be moved in um, but had at least one scikit-hep developer uh, working or working with them, or at least that's that's my definition. I was never able to actually get the rest to agree to exactly that definition, but that's that's my working definition. And uh, so that's why Pybind11 gets listed there. It's it's a um, affiliated package because we share a developer me um, with the Pybind11 library, and you know we we sort of have a, a say in that and how that is developed. And most importantly, if we have somebody come into Scikit-HEP, we want them to use Pybind11 over the other tools because that one we we have a lot of experience with.
0: Very cool. Uh, another one I thought was interesting is hep units. So th- this idea of representing units, like you know the standard units, they're 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 not enough for us. We we have our own kind of things like molarity and stuff, but also um, luminosity and and other stuff, right?
1: Yeah, different experience. Um, experiments can uh, differ a bit. So there's a sort of a, a standard that got built up for for units, and so this just. Sort of puts that together and and has and what uh, the the unit that we've sort of decided on this should be the the standard unit that's one and the rest are different scalars. It's a very tiny little library. It was the first one to be fully statically typed because it was tiny. <laughs> that's um, easy to do. It was like because mypy infers constants. There was uh, like two functions or something, and then it was done. Yeah, um, yeah. probably a lot of floats mm-hmm. So But uh, and that's that's sort of what it is. So you can use that if and the idea is that the rest of the libraries will will uh, adhere to, to that system of units. So then if you use this and then use that, the values it gives you, then you can um, have a nice hum, human readable units and be sure of your units.
0: Yeah, that, that's really neat. Have you heard of Pint? Are you familiar yes, with this one? Yes, I love, I love Pint. Um, oh gosh, pint I think Pint actually is interesting takes well. the, uh, the
1: types through, and I, I use Pint some, but uh, it actually gives you a quantity out, or a NumPy quantity. Whereas um, the happiness just stays out of the way and it's a way to be more clear in your code, but it's not enforced. Pint is enforced, which I like enforcing, but it also can slow down. You can't, these are not actual real numbers anymore. So you pay it. Yeah, so it's gonna cost. add a
0: ton of overhead, right? But Pint's interesting because you can do things like three times meter plus four times centimeter and you end up with 3.04 meters. Yeah, because those like are actually that, right?
1: real quantities. They're actually a different object. Um, which is the, the good thing about it, but it's also the reason that then it's not going to talk to, say, a C library that expects a regular number or something
0: as well. Sure. Okay, um, maybe one or two more, and then we'll probably be out of time for these. But what else should people maybe pay attention to that they could generally find useful over here? You mentioned vector.
1: It's a little bit newer, but it's uh, certainly for general physics, uh, I think it's useful because uh, it's uh, a library for 2D, 3D, and uh, relativistic vectors. And there aren't really—it's—it's it's a very common um, sort of learning example you see, but there aren't really very many libraries that do this that actually have. You know, if you want to take the the magnitude of a, of a vector in three D space, there just isn't a nice library for that. So we wrote Vector to do that, and uh, Vector is supported by Awkward. Um, it has an Awkward backend, it has a Numba backend, uh, a NumPy backend, and then plain object backend. Eventually, we might work on more, and it even has a Numba Awkward, so you can you can use a. Um, a vector inside an awkward array inside a number jet compiled loop and still take magnitudes and do stuff like that.
0: Oh, you know, that's really cool. Awkward that integration in there. Of yeah. vectors. Because we have a lot of those in physics. Sure. And you can you can do things like ask if one vector is close to another vector and things like that. Even in different it looks like uh, one in polar coordinates and one in, you know, a Cartesian or something like that.
1: It has different unit systems and it can actually um, it actually stores the vector in that. So you don't waste memory or something if that's that's the representation you have. That was a feature from uh, root that we wanted to make sure we we got. And it also has sort of the idea of of momentums too and stuff for the for the relativistic stuff. We end up with a lot of that. And then maybe just mention the since we mentioned the histogramming stuff and that's the area that's the ones that I really work on. Um, the ones I specifically work on that are general purpose. Um, boost histogram is a wrapper for the C boost histogram library. Boost is the sort of the big um, C++ library just one step below the standard library. And uh, r- right at the time I was starting at at Princeton, the uh, I met the author of Boost histogram, who's he, from physics. And uh, he was in the process, I believe, of getting this accepted into Boost. And it got accepted after that. But uh, one of the things that uh, he decided to do was pull out his initial Python bindings that were written in uh, uh, Boost Python, which is actually very similar to PyBind 11, but requires Boost instead of no- not requiring anything but uh, design is intentionally very similar and so i proposed i would i would work on boost histogram and you know, write these this the python bindings for it inside scikit hep and that would be sort of the main project i started on when I, when I started at princeton and that's you know that's what i did boost histogram is a extremely powerful histogramming library so it's a histogram as an object rather than like in numpy you can there's a histogram function and you give it an array and then it spits it couple of arrays back out at you that you are now you now have to manage these they don't have any special meaning whereas with histogram histograms really are much more natural as an object just like a data frame is more natural as an object where you tie that information together a histograms really natural that way where you still have the information about what the data actually was on the axes if you have labels you want to keep those attached to those to that to that data and you may need to fill again which is one of the main things that um physics really wanted because we tend to fill histograms and then keep filling them or rebinning them or doing operations on them. And you can do all those very naturally and boost histograms, the actual, the, the C++ wrapper in pybind 11 and a lot of, and, um, I actually got involved in CI build because of boost histogram, because I, one of the things I wanted is make sure it worked everywhere. And it obviously requires C++, so it com- requires compilation. Um, and then hist is a nice wrapper on top of that. That just makes it a lot more friendly to, to use because the, Original boost histogram author wants to keep this. Hans Stabinsky wants to keep this quite um, pure and clean. So hist is the more the more natural. I and mean, even if you're not in hep, I think that's still the more
0: natural one to use. Yeah, and, and and those diff- plot and uh, plots. Uh, and right, right. There's thing. a lot of people who do who use histograms across all sorts of disciplines. So that would definitely be one of those that is generally useful. All right, so I think that brings us to CI build wheel. Uh, let's let's talk a bit about that. And I mean, maybe the place to start here is. Uh, Your what are wheels right the the first sentence describing it is Python wheels are great building them across Mac Linux Windows and other multiple versions of Python not so much so but no description wheel, of what a wheel is <laughs> yeah exactly well wheels are good there's times when there are no wheels and things install slower they might not install at all it's generally a bad thing if you don't have a wheel but um, they're they're not easy to make right so tell us what is a wheel and then let's talk about why maybe building them across all these platforms and. This uh, cross product, along with like versions of Python and whatnot, is uh, a mess.
1: When you distribute Python, you have several options. The most common one, and most packages have at least an sdist, which is just basically a, a tarball of the of the source. Right. Um, when you pip install it, it slightly basically maybe you're missing or, some things or adding some things, but right, Otherwise, it it's mostly unzips.
0: The yeah, it unzips your source and puts it somewhere Python will find it, and then that's that.
1: Yeah. So it you know, runs your build system. So setup tools traditionally that's become a lot more powerful recently, but um it has to run the build system to figure out what what do you do with it this is just a bunch of files and then it puts it together in a particular structure in your in your um you know, on your computer and so a wheel was a package that was already um everything was already in place so it's already in a particular structure it knows knows the structure and all python has to do for a pure python wheel one that does not have any um binary pieces in it it just grabs the contents inside and dumps them following a specific uh, set of rules into places into your um, site packages. So then you now have something installed. There's no setup.py in your wheel. There's no pyproject.toml. Those sorts of things are not in the wheel. The wheel's already there. It can't run arbitrary code.
0: Yeah, exactly. That was one of the points I was going to make is one of the things that can be scary about installing packages is just by virtue of installing them, you're running arbitrary code because often that is execute, you know, Python space, setup up PY space, you know, install or something like that. And like, whatever that thing does, that's what happens when you pip install, right? But not with wheels, as you said, it comes down in a binary blob and just like, boom, here it is. Obviously the thinking is we have this package delivered to a million computers. Why do we need to have every million computer run all the steps? Why don't we just run it once and then go here? And then also that saves you a ton of time, right? Like I just um, installed um, MicroWhiskey and it took... I don't know, 30 seconds, 45 seconds to install because it didn't have a wheel. So it sat there and it just grinded away compiling it, you know?
1: Yeah. So there's two possibilities. Um a pure Python package, a wheel is still superior because of the not running arbitrary code. Uh Pip will actually go ahead and compile all your PYC files. Your um that so goes ahead and makes the bytecode for all those. If it's a wheel, if it's a s if it's a tarball, it doesn't do that. Um if it doesn't pass through the wheel stage anyway. Um and then when every time you open the file, then it's going to have the first time it's going to have to make that, that byte code, so it'll be a little slower. The first time you open it, there's, there's a variety of, of, uh, reasons. I think it's python wheels.com, something like that. Um, that describes why you should use wheels. Um, that's maybe that's not it, but I think it is. Yes. Python wheels. So they have like a list of of uh, advantages there, but yeah, um, they also
0: have a little like checklist. It says how are we doing uh, for the top 360 packages? And apparently, 342 of them have wheels. And it shows you for your popular packages which ones like Click does, but Future doesn't, for example, and so on. So yeah, Future's yeah. been
1: there for a long time, and was, yeah, but um, but yeah, so wheels are really good. Um, and they actually replaced an older mechanism that was trying to do something somewhat similar called Eggs. But I avoid talking about those. All really right, understand. <laughs> let, it. It, let it live in the past. But, let it live in the um, past. The Wheels also are a great way if you have compile a uh, compile that happens. So if you compile some code as part of your um, ex, um, as part of your build, then that of course is much slower. Um, if you have the if you like just my have my example, yeah, mm-hmm. it's
0: like it was doing GCC or something. And if you don't have a forever. compiler, it won't even work. Right, exactly. Right, so you, you have to have some setup, at least a little setup. You have to have a compiler setup at the very moment. Right. How, how many Windows users have seen cannot find vcvars.bat? <laughs> right. And and, like in what Windows is this? you I don't have want to this. be in a in the environment or you have to have the the right script sourced,
1: yes. So, um wheels had uh, also can um contain binary components like uh, .so's and things. And they have a tag as part of their name. They have a very special naming scheme for wheels. And uh the tag is stored in the wheel too. And they can tell you what python version they're good for what platform they uh can uh are supported on uh they have a build number and then they have a uh, uh the python's actually in two pieces there's the the ABI and the, the interface python
0: yeah you can see there's some huge long name that with a bunch of underscores separating it and basically uh when you try to pip install you- it sorry go ahead it's
1: also one of the reasons that names are normalized. There's no difference between a dash and an underscore. It's because that special wheel name has dashes in it. So the package name at that point in the in the file name has to be underscores.
0: Yeah, and so basically, when you pip install, it says it it builds up that that name and says, "Do you have this as a binary? Give it to me, right?" Something like this. Yeah, yeah it knows how to pick out
1: the. It looks for the right one. If it finds a binary, it'll just download it, depending slightly on the system and how new your pip is.
0: Um, right, and this is one of the main innovations, ideas, or philosophies behind Conda and um, Anaconda, right? It's like, let's just take that and make sure that we build all of these things in a really clear way and then sort of package up the the testing and com- compilation and distribute uh, distributing all that together, right?
1: Yes, this is very similar to this. This came, I think, I'm pretty sure it came after Conda. I think where they were still in eggs when Conda was invented. And then sort of building up wheels was challenging. Building a wheel was was challenging. That's that's. See, a yeah, build wheel has really changed that. um If you want a pure Python, it's really easy. You use today. You should be using the build tool, which I'm also I'm a maintainer of that as well. um But build just builds an sdist for you, or it builds a wheel. And right. but and so if you would
0: say something like Python setup py um, bdist or something like that, and then boom, out yeah, you shouldn't be wheel. doing that anymore. Please don't. But that is okay. How, you how no? Yeah, how would I do it? Tell me the right way. The the best it, way. Um,
1: well, you could do Python um, or pip install build and then python-m dash build. And that will build both an sdist and a wheel and it'll build the wheel okay. from the sdist. Uh, if you use pipx, which I would recommend, then you can just say pipx run build and you don't have to do anything. That'll that'll download build into a virtual environment for you. It'll do it and then it
0: eventually it'll throw away the virtual environment um, after a week. Interesting, okay. So we could just use the build. We should be using the build. You should be
1: using the build tool. For Estus, yeah. there's a big um, benefit to this, and that is it will it will um, use your pyproject.toml, and if you say you require NumPy, then it will go um, like you're using the NumPy headers, the C headers. Then it will go, and it will um, when it's when it's building Estus, it will make the a Pep um, five seventeen virtual environment. It'll install NumPy, anything that's in your your uh, your um, requires in your pyproject.toml, and then it will run the setup.py uh, inside that environment. So you can now import NumPy directly in there. Um, and it'll work even when you're building an sdist. If you do Python sdist or Python uh, setup.py stuff, it can't do that because you're literally running Python, giving it setup.py, import NumPy, now it's broken. Right, it, it, nothing, nothing triggers that, um, that call to the uh, pyproject.tomal to see what, what you need. Uh, for a wheel, the best way to do it is with PIP, uh, or the original way to do it was with PIP wheel, um, because PIP has to be able to build wheels in order to, um, install things. The, that got added to PIP before build existed. Um, but now the best way to do it would be with build wheel. And that's actually, it's doing the right thing. It's actually trying to build the wheel you want. Whereas PIP wheel is actually just building a wheelhouse. So if you depend on NumPy and NumPy doesn't have wheels, which, uh, they, they did better with Python 3.10, so I'm not going to complain about, about NumPy for, for Python 3.10. But for 3.9, they didn't have wheels for a while. So it'll build the wheels there, and it'll build your wheels, and it'll dump them all in the wheelhouse, whatever the output is. So you'll get you'll be building NumPy wheels, which you definitely don't want to try to upload.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely not. All right, well, that's, that's really cool, and I definitely learned something. I will start using build instead of uh, doing it the other way. You can now delete your setup.py, too. Yeah, that's the big thing, right? So you don't have to run that kind of stuff, right?
1: Yeah, the, they're trying to move away from the, any commands to setup.py because you don't even need one anymore, and uh, you can't control that that environment. It's it's very much an internal detail.
0: Like wrapping up this segment of the conversation, we want a wheel because that's best. It installs without requiring the compiler tools on our system. It installs faster. It's built just for our platform. The challenge is when you become a maintainer, you got to solve this this matrix of different Python versions that are supported and different platforms. Like, for example, there's macOS Intel, there's macOS uh, M1, Apple Silicon, there's multiple versions of Windows, there's different versions of Linux, right? Like ARM Linux versus AMD64 Linux. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and now Musil Musil Linux versus other
1: Linux varieties. Yeah, so one of the challenges with a wheel um, is making it distributable. So if you just go out and you build a wheel and then you try to give it to someone else, it may not work. Um, certainly on, um, Linux, if you try to pretty much, if you do that, that it just won't work, um, because the systems are going to be different, uh, on Mac OS, it'll only work on the version you compiled it on and not anything, um, older. And, and, uh, you'll even see people trying to compile on, on Mac OS 10.14 because they're, they want their wheels to work as in, in many places as you <laughs> I, want. But so you, you can use the, the latest one. There's jankiest. ways to fix
0: that. and. <laughs> well, Exactly, let's find the jankiest. Like, I've got a Mac Mini from ni- from two thousand nine. We're building on that thing because it will work for most people, right? I think that's how they actually build the official Python binaries. Interesting. I'm not sure, but well, I've, I've but then that. Apple went in through, like last year around this time. They threw a big spanner in the works and said, "You know what? We're going to completely switch to ARM and our own silicon, and uh, you got to compile for something different now." Yeah, and cross compiling has always been a challenge. Um yeah and then Windows is actually the easiest of all of them. You're
1: most likely on Windows to be able to compile something that you can give to someone else. But uh, the Yeah rest that's of the, true. The that is one of the things that
0: Microsoft's been really pretty good at is backwards compatibility. It, it holds them back in other ways, but yeah, typically you can run an app from 20 years ago and it'll still run. Yeah. And th- there are a few caveats, but uh, not not many compared at least compared to the other systems. Uh
1: Apple's really good, but you do have to you do have to understand how to um you do have to set your minimum version. And you have to get a Python that had that minimum version set when it was compiled. If you do that, it works really well. So what I actually did with, what I actually started with in scikit-hep, I had this, I had, I was building boost histogram, which needed to be able to run anywhere. That was something I absolutely wanted. It had to be pip install boost histogram and it just worked no matter what. And also we had several other compiled packages at the time. Several we had inherited um, and uh, Iminuous was compiled and that was quite popular. We had a couple of specific ones. And we had a couple, a couple more that ended up being, becoming interested in in that. In fact, during this sort of period is when Awkward started compiling pieces. And so what I started with was building my own system to do this. It was called um, Azure Wheel Helpers, which uh, was, as you can guess by the name, Azure was basically a set of Azure um, DevOps scripts. It was right after Azure had come out. And I wrote a series of blog posts on this and described the exact process um, and sort of the things I'd found out about how you build a compatible wheel. Um, on macOS, you have to make sure you get the most compatible um, um, CPython from from Python.org itself. You you know, can't use you can't use Brew or something like that because those are going to be compiled for whatever system they were targeting. And on Linux, you have to you have to run the the mini Linux system, and you should run audit wheel. And actually, on Mac, you should run devel devel um, wheel. though I might be getting it, I think it's devel wheel um so there's this this series of things that you have to do and i started maintaining this this multi hundred line set of scripts to do this and and i was also being limited by azure at the time they didn't have these all the templates and stuff they have now so everything had to be managed through Git subtree because it couldn't be a separate repository and um and, I, and then when uh, jim started working awkward he went and just rewrote the whole thing to because i thought it they, he wanted it to look simpler for him and Took a couple of things out that were needed, and suddenly made it two separate things. Now I had to co- had to help maintain that. So when Python 3.8 or whatever it was came out, now I had I had a completely different set of changes I had to make for that one, and it was really just not it was not working out. It uh, was not very easy to maintain. And I was watching um, CI build wheel uh, a um, and it was this package. It was a Python package that would would do this, and it didn't matter what CI system you were on because it was written in Python, um, and it could follow a nice. Um, or Python principles for good package design. It had unit tests and all that sort of stuff. So it looked really good. There were a couple of things that was missing. I came in, I added, I made PRs for the things that I'd, I'd come up with that it didn't have, and they got accepted. And uh, there was a shared maintainer between PyBind 11 and CI Build Wheel as well. I think that's one of the reasons that I sort of heard about it and was really watching it. And I finally decided just to make the switch. And uh, I did, at some point a little later, I actually became a maintainer of CI Build Wheel. But uh, I think I started doing the switch before. I made it really easy once I was a maintainer to say, oh, this is a package that you know, we have some control over. It's okay. Let's just Right. Your this, packages this is a need a choice to depend upon this because we have a say. It just took out all of that, that maintenance and now um dependabot does all the maintenance
0: for us. It does the pin moves forward a pin and see a build wheel and that's it. Nice. So if I want to accomplish if I'm a package developer owner and I want to share that package with everybody, we've already determined we would ideally want to have a wheel but getting that wheel is hard so ci build wheel will let you integrate it as the name indicates into your continuous integration and one of those steps of ci could be build the wheel right but it pretty almost it reduces it down to pretty much that that there's
1: a step in your ci that says um you know run ci build wheel and then ci build wheel is designed to really integrate nicely with the build matrix so um you could in in for a fairly simple package or for many packages, you can really just do Mac, Windows, and Linux, have the same job, like in GitHub Actions, it's easy to do the same job, um, and then call CI build wheel, and that's about it. it. It just goes through all the different versions of Python that are supported. It, goes, uh, it just goes through and makes uh, a wheel for each. And uh, in fact, it even has one feature that was really nice that uh, I'd always struggled with a bit, is testing. So if you give it a test command, it will even take your your package. It will install it in a new environment that's not, you know, in a different directory that's not related to your build at all, and make sure it works and passes whatever test you give it. And uh, we'll do that across the platforms.
0: We'll do like a macOS test and a Windows test.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, for each. So CI build will, will really just seize the platform it's sitting on because it's inside the build matrix, and so it's run run for each. And uh, yeah, it does for each each one. It it um will run that that test. And the the simplest test is just echo, and that will just make sure it installs because it won't try to install your wheel unless uh, there's something in that test command. Even that's useful sometimes. Even that's broken sometimes because of NumPy not supporting one of those (laughs) things in that matrix.
0: Yeah, it can't install the dependencies, so that step fails or something. So uh, it says it currently supports GitHub Actions, Azure Pipelines, which I don't know how long those are going to be two separate things. Maybe they'll always be separate, but Microsoft owning GitHub, I feel like, they're saying do stuff in Azure Pipelines and then they're kind of moving. Like, yeah, I think they're similar. The right? runners are the same. They
1: actually have the same environments. Um, so I think they'll exist just as two different interfaces probably. And Azure is not so tied to GitHub and it has more of an enterprise type. Yeah, for sure. Focus, that, definitely think. that's a different focus. was just a rewrite and a better rewrite in most cases of it.
0: I got to learn. Yeah, they, I think GitHub Actions came second. All right, so then Travis CI, App Circle CI, and GitLab CI, at least all of those, right? At least those are the
1: those are the ones we test on, and then um, it runs locally. Uh, there are some limitations to running it locally. Uh, if it's if you target Linux and you can any any system that has Docker can target Linux, um, you can just ask to build Linux wheels. And you can actually run it from like my Mac or from Windows. I assume from a Windows machine. I've tried Windows with Docker and um, Windows. It does install to a, a, a standard location: C colon backslash CI build wheel. But other than that, it's safe to run it there. In macOS, it will install to your macOS system. It's installed system versions of Python. So that's something we haven't solved yet. We might be able to someday. Um, so it's not a good idea unless you really are okay with installing every version of Python that ever
0: existed into your, <laughs> into your system. system. Uh, maybe get a that's, VM that's of your Mac. It's
1: uh, the Python.org Python. But...
0: Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it's somewhat safe. Um, if you're on Windows, you could use um, a Windows subsystem for Linux, WSL as well, in addition to Docker, I suspect. Well, Although I haven't tried that.
1: Mini Linux has to run. Uh, you could, I'm sure you, as long as you can launch Docker, um, the thing that you have to be able to do is launch Docker because you have to use the um, Mini Linux Docker images or you should use that or a derivative of that. There's lots of rules to exactly what can be in the environment and things like that. And PyPA maintains that. One thing that also helps is that we have the main um, Mini Linux maintainer is also a CI build wheel maintainer. So it's one reason that those things tend. That uh, they fit well together. Features tend to, to match and come yeah, out at the indeed. same time, like, like Musa Linux, which is a big big thing recently. It's not actually in a released version of CI Build Wheel yet. What is Musa Linux? So, a normal Linux uh, is based on glibc, and that's actually what controls, it's one of two things that controls mini Linux. So, if can you download the binary wheel or do you have to build? If you have an old version of pip, that will uh, they had to teach pip about each version of mini Linux. That was a, a mess. So they eventually switched a nu- to to a, a standard numbering system. That is your GLIBC number, and now Pip can, doesn't. And the current Pip will be able to install a future Mini Linux as long as your system supports. But uh, that was a big problem. So Pip nine can only pu- install Mini Linux one. It can't install Mini Linux ten, even if your C is fine for for it. So the real the other thing is the C version. And uh, Mini Linux one was based on CentOS five, Red Hat five. um, Minilinux 2010 was CentOS 6, Minilinux 2014 was CentOS 7, and then now they switched to Debian because of the CentOS of, of sort of switching to the stream model. Um, so Minilinux 2.14 or 2.24 is glibc 2.24, and that's Debian 8 or something like that. And so, but that's glibc-based. There are um, distributions that are not glibc-based, most notably Alpine, very used Alpine, Um, So this tiny, tiny little Docker image, it's a really fun distribution to use if you're on Docker. But um, it actually sounds fun to install, but I've never tried it without Docker. But um, it's these five megabyte Docker wheels, or Docker, I guess Docker doesn't do wheels, Docker images. Docker images, yeah. But um, that doesn't use glibc, that uses Musil. And so Musil Linux will run on Alpine.
0: Okay, got it. So if you're building for the platform Alpine and and similar ones, right? Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. So, anything cool. and you said, Yeah, and you said I can run this locally as well. Um, I know I would use it in CI because I'm trying. I've got that matrix of all the versions of CPython and PyPy, PyPI, Py, Py, and then all the platforms. And I want to check as many of those boxes as possible to put wheels in it, right? Um, yeah. Suppose I'm on my Mac and I want to make use of this to fill in, maybe do some testing, at least on some of these columns. Like, how do I do that? What's the benefit there?
1: Well, I can tell you a case where it happened. Um, so we were shipping, uh, CMake and the psychic build organization ran out of Travis credits and, uh, they were being built. We hadn't switched them over to being emulated builds on, uh, GitHub actions yet. And it just ran out. We couldn't, we couldn't build them. And one of them had been missed and we also weren't waiting to upload. So we had uploaded everything, but we had one, one set, or maybe, maybe it was all of the emulated builds. I think it was one set that didn't, didn't work. And so we wanted to go ahead and upload those, those missing wheels. And I tried, but uh, I couldn't actually get emulation, uh, Docker Q, Q, QEMU emulation, well, I couldn't get that working on my Mac. So uh, the mini Linux maintainer used his Linux machine and he um, yeah, had QEMU emulation on it and he built the emulated images, it took a few hours, but he just built them locally and then, sent, and then
0: uploaded, so filled in the missing wheels. So if, if I'm uh, maintaining a, a package, if I'm, I've got some package I'm putting on PyPI and I want to test it, does it make sense to do it locally or does it just make sense to put it on uh, some, some CI system? Um, for
1: same build wheel, usually, I do some local testing, but I'm also developing same build wheel. But um, you know, usually it's probably fine to do this in your, just in your CI and usually don't want to run the full, full thing every time. Usually you have your regular unit tests. The CI build wheel is going to be a lot slower because it's going through and it's making each set of wheels and launching Docker images and things like that. Uh, and it's installing Python each time uh, for macOS and Windows. So uh, usually, unless, if you have a fairly quick build, I've seen some people just run CI Build Will as part of their test suite. Um, but usually you just run it, say, right before a release. Maybe I usually do it once before the release and then on the
0: release. Right, exactly. Okay, that makes sense because it's a pretty heavyweight type of operation. So... When I look at all these different platforms, I see macOS Intel, macOS Apple Silicon, different uh, bitnesses of Windows. And then I think about CI systems. You know, what CI systems can I use that support all these things? Like, does GitHub Actions support both versions of macOS, for example, plus Windows?
1: GitHub Actions is by far our most uh, popular um, platform. It switched very quickly. It used to be Travis. Travis was a challenge because they didn't do Windows very They still don't do Windows very well. Um, and it's a challenge for us because we actually can't run our macOS um, tests on them anymore, because once we joined the PyPA, the billing became an issue and we basically just lost um, macOS running for it. Um, but uh, Circle, I think, um, Azure and GitHub Auctions, I think they do all three. Um, and you can always flip things up. You Travis for the Linux and then AppFair for Windows. I mean, you, you can do it that way. One of the big things that I, d- I helped develop for CI build wheel was the uh, pyproject.toml or, or any .toml configuration, usually that one, um, configuration for CI build wheel. That way you can get your CI build wheel configuration out of your, your um, YAML files. That way it works locally, um, which is one of the main, one of the things I was after, but also you can just do it and then run on several different systems. Like you might like the fact that Travis, Travis is I think the only one that does the uh, native strange architectures. Have to emulate it other places, which is a lot slower, five times slower or something.
0: Yeah, so kind of split that up, get the uh, the definition, and then create m- maybe multiple CI um, yeah. jobs. And your CI based scripts on are really simple. Yeah, yeah. yeah very but the cool.
1: the example script is just a few lines. It doesn't it does not take much to do this. Comparing oh comparing yeah, the hundreds of lines it even, used to take.
0: Yeah, sure. And I didn't even scroll down here. You've got a nice grid on GitHub.com/slash slash CI build wheel that shows on GitHub Actions which is supported on Azure Pipelines, what support oh, so Oh, that's not on.
1: right. Styrical CI doesn't do this. AppVayor, no, but, does all yeah.
0: AppVayer, mm-hmm. Travis, Azure, and GitHub do. it does has do Mac OS, Mac- but we can't test it. <laughs> Theoretically, it does it. <laughs> gotcha. And then, uh, yeah, I wonder about the, the M1, the Apple Silicon ARM versions versus the Intel versions. I don't know how, how well that's permeated into the world yet, um, but the fact they have Mac at all is kind of impressive.
1: Nobody has an M1 runner yet. Um, there are a few places I think now that you can purchase time on one, but no runners. I Minute mean, last I checked, GitHub Actions, you couldn't even run it yourself on the M1. Um, that may be that may have changed. I don't know.
0: That was a while back. Yeah. I mean there are some crazy uh places out there. I think there's one called Mac Mini Colo. I think that's what it's called. Let me see if that's uh yeah, I think that's it. Yeah. So you can get ca- you can go to these places like Mac Mini Colo and get get a whole bunch of Mac Minis and put them into this crazy data <laughs> center. But, you know, that's not the same as I upload a text file into GitHub that says run on Azure uh, on GitHub Actions, and then that's the end of it, right? You probably got to set up your whole, like some whole build system into a, a set of minis and like that doesn't sound very practical for most people.
1: Ideally with what you could do is it, I mean you just need one mini and then you set up a GitHub Actions uh hosted runner, looking a locally hosted runner. Um and other systems do that too. Get get uh, GitLab CI was big on that. Um you can you can do anything on GitLab CI. We just haven't tested that because they don't have those publicly. But um if you if you have your own you can do that. I know I know somebody who does this with basically with root and runs the has a Mac mini and runs the M1 builds on that. But um, you could do that. I, mean, I have a Mac mini and the lead developer of CI
0: BuildWheel also has a uh, Mac mini or a M1. What? He has an M1 of something. I don't know. I have a Mac mini. Mine is Mac That That's what I'm uh, talking to you right now on. It's a fantastic little machine.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's very impressive. I love the way the boost histogram. It was fast. I have a 16-inch, almost maxed out um, MacBook. And the Mac mini M1, it was faster
0: on boost histogram than this thing. Wow. Yeah, I, I have a uh, maxed out six, uh, 15 inches, a little bit older, a couple of years, but I just don't touch that thing unless I literally need it as a laptop because I want to be somewhere else. But yeah, I, I'm definitely not drawn to it. These. So you could probably set up one of these minis for 700 bucks and then tie it up. But that's, again, not as easy as you know just clicking the public free option that works. But still, it's it's within the realm of possibility.
1: Yeah. And Apple has actually helped out several, like um, I know uh, Homebrew and a few others, they've helped out with uh, um by giving them either mac minis or some some something that they could build with so they uh i believe um brew actually builds uh, homebrew actually builds on M, on real m1s i know it does because they're the builds are super fast i remember that like it builds root like 20 minutes the root recipe because <laughs> wow, i maintain that impressive. and the normal one takes about an hour because running on multiple cores but the it's like three times faster it's done in like 20 minutes I just thought something was wrong when i first saw that
0: that's it how could it be done at Something broke. What broke? Interesting. All right, Henry, we're getting really short on time, we're a little bit over, but it's been a fun conversation. How about you give us a look at the future? Where are things going um, with the all the next, stuff?
1: Next thing I'm interested in in uh, being involved with is SciKit Build, which is a um, a package that currently sort of augments setup tools, but hopefully will eventually sort of replace setup tools as, your, as the thing that you um, build with, and it will call out to CMake. So you basically just you basically write a cmake um, file, and this could wrap an existing package, or maybe you need some of the other things that cmake has, and this will then let you build that as a regular Python package. In fact, recently somebody uh, sort of put together CI build wheel and scikit build and the cmake example, and and built uh, LLVM and pulled out just the clang format tool and made wheels out of that. And oh, wow. now you can just do pip install clang format. It's one to two megabytes. It works on all systems, including Apple Silicon and things. I just tried it on Apple Silicon yesterday. And it's a pip install. Now you can clang format C++ code. And that's just you know, mind-blowing. You can add it to pre-commit. The pre-commit CI, it runs in two. I mean, I've been fighting for about a week to reduce the the uh, size of the clang format recipe from 600 megabytes to just under the 250. That was the maximum for pre-commit.ci. And then you can now pip install it. Under you know, about a megabyte for Linux, that that sort of thing, and I I think that would be really um, that would be a, a really great thing to to work on. It's been around since twenty uh, fourteen, but it, it needs some some serious work. And so I'm currently actually working on writing a grant to to try to get funded to just to work on uh, basically the scikit build sci-kit build system and looking for interesting science use cases that would be interested in uh, adapting a, or switching a existing build system over or adapting to it um, or Taking something that has never been available from Python and making it available, and yes, root, root might be one. Circuit build packages. I'm, I'm
0: looking for a wide variety. Yeah, uh-huh. how neat! Scikit build packages fundamentally just the glue between setup tools, Python module, and CMake. Yeah, so it's a real um, way to take some of these things that were based on CMake and sort of expose them to Python. Yeah, so you can just
1: um, have a CMake package that does all the CMake things well. You know, like finding finding different libraries, and and that I'm, I'm a big. CMake person, physics uses it very heavily. Like most C does. It's about 60%, I think, of all build systems are, C- are CMake based now. Um, going from GitWare's numbers, but they make CMake. But um, it's I think it's a, it's very powerful. It can be used for things like that and uh, will really open up a, a much easier C, uh, more natural in C and C and, and Fortran and things like that and CUDA than is currently available. Setup tools is, uh, Distribute Tools is going away in Python 3.12. Setup tools is not really designed to build C plus packages or packages. It was really just a, a hack on top of distutils, which happened to be to build just Python itself. Though,
0: so. well, SciKit Build sounds like the perfect tool to apply to the the science space because there's so many of these weird compiled things that are challenging to you know install and deploy and share and so on. So making that easier sounds good. All right, well, I think we're probably going to need need to leave it there just for the sake of time, but it's been uh, it's been awesome to talk about all the internals of supporting scikit-hep. and people should check out CI build wheel. It looks like it. You know, if you're maintaining a package either publicly or just for internal for your organization, it looks like it'll be a big help. Yeah, if it's got binary, any
1: sort of binary build in it, yes.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. If not, build is fine. Yeah, right. And I learned about build, which is good to know. All right. So before you get out of your Henry, let me ask you the two final questions. Uh, you're going to write some code. I mean, like Python code. What editor would you use?
1: Depends on how much. It'll either be
0: Vi if it's a very small amount. Um,
1: if it's a really large project that, let's say, it takes several days, then I'll use um, PyCharm. And then I've really started using VS Code quite a bit, and that's sort of expanding to fill in all the middle ground and kind of eating in on both of the other both of the <laughs> gotcha. edges. Yeah, yeah. There's
0: some interesting stuff going there. Good choice, but all with the Vi um, uh, mode or plugins added, of course and then a uh, notable PyPI package. I mean, we probably talked about 20 already. If you wanna just give a shout out to one of those, that's fine, or if you got a, a new idea.
1: I'm um, gonna one. go with one that's um, unlike might not get mentioned, but I th- I, I'm really excited by it. The development of it is, um, the, I think the is quite new, but what he's actually done, as far as the actual package has been, been nice, it needs, it needs some, some nice touches. But, uh, and that is plot text, PlotText, P-L-O-T-T-E-X-T. And I'm really excited about that because it makes these, the actual plots it makes are really, really nice. And they're plotted to the terminal and uh, it can integrate okay. with Rich. Uh And of course uh, I'm, I'm interested in it because I want to integrate it with te- uh, I want to see it integrated with uh, textual. I think a textual app that combines this with uh, um file browsers and things like that would be incredible. You know, yeah. So you can do things I'd like, like to with a terminal, uproot, for example.
0: Yes. Yeah, so you could like cruise around your files, use your, um, your root IO integration, pull these things up here and you know put the plot right on the screen, right? But in the terminal, okay? Yeah, this is really cool, I had no idea. And this is based on Rich, you say? Uh, it, can you integrate it, with Rich? it integrates with Rich, okay, got it, yeah. So as soon as I saw it, I started trying to make sure the two people were talking to each other,
1: <laughs> Will and the person who is developing this.
0: Yeah, exactly, Please All make right.
1: these things work together.
0: That's very cool. They seem like they should, right? They're in the same general zone. Yeah, they, and they do now. They, you had, there had to be some communication back and forth as far as what size the plots were. In there. So right.
1: This should this should yeah. work in
0: it. A good recommendation. Uh, definitely one I had not learned about, so I'm sure people will enjoy that. All right, Henry, final call to action. People want to do more with wheels, CI Build Wheel, or maybe some of the other stuff we talked about. What do you tell them?
1: Um, look through, I, I think one of the best places to go is the scikit-hep developer pages, even if you have no interest in scikit-hep tools or hept-hep at all. Um, and that sort of shows you how all these things integrate together really well. And uh has nice as nice documentation. Of course, CI build wheel itself is nice and the PyPA, a lot of the, the PyPA projects have, have gotten um good documentation, as well as packaging at python.org. We've updated that quite a bit, look like to to reflect some of these things. But I, I would really I really like the scikit hep um developer pages. I mean I'm biased because I wrote most of them. <laughs>
0: Nice. Yeah, I'll link to those to and I'll I'll try to link to pretty much everything else that we spoke to as well. So people can check out the podcast player show notes to find all that stuff. I guess one final thing that we didn't call out that I think is worth pointing out is CI Build Wheel is under the PyPA, the Python Packaging Authority. So it gives it some officialness, I guess you should say.
1: Yes, that happened after after I joined. One of the first things I wanted to do was I, I thought this should really be in the PyPA. And uh, I was sort of pushing for that and the other developers were fine with that. And so we brought it up. And uh, I actually joined the PyPA just before that by becoming a member of Build. Uh, so I got to vote on CI Build wheel coming in. But it was a very enthusiastic vote, even without my
0: vote. Um, and PipX joined right at the same time too. So those were those fighting time. Now, PipX is a great library. I, I really like the way PipX works. It's a great tool. All right, Henry, thank you for being here. It's been great. Thanks for uh, all the insight on all these internals around building and installing Python packages.
1: There's also a lot more on my blog. So I dot GitLab.io. So that's also right a link to look. That links to all those other things, obviously, too. Thanks again
0: for being here. Yeah, see ya. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. This has been another episode of Talk Python to Me. Our guest on this episode was Henry Schreiner, and it's brought to you by us over at Talk Python Training, and the transcripts were brought to you by Assembly AI. Do you need a great automatic speech-to-text API? Get human-level accuracy in just a few lines of code. Visit TalkPython.fm slash Want to level up your Python? We have one of the largest catalogs of Python video courses over at TalkPython. Our content ranges from true beginners to deeply advanced topics like memory and async. And best of all, there's not a subscription in sight. Check it out for yourself at training.talkpython.fm. Be sure to subscribe to the show, open your favorite podcast app, and search for Python. We should be right at the top. You can also find the iTunes feed at slash iTunes, the Google Play feed at slash play, and the direct RSS feed at slash RSS on TalkPython.fm. We're live streaming most of our recordings these days. If you want to be part of the show and have your comments featured on the air, be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at TalkPython.fm slash YouTube. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Now get out there and write some Python code.